they uh, start sunbathing already in March to be more dark-skinned than they really are, because this is what foreign women expect them to be. You're listening to the Transformative Podcast, brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. This is Transformative Podcast of the Research Center for the History of Transformations, and my name is Jelena Djureinovic. In this episode, we are talking about sex and tourism in the Yugoslav Adriatic, and I have the best guest for this topic possible here with me today, Anita Buhin. Anita is a cultural historian of socialist Yugoslavia in the Mediterranean context, focusing on the relations between popular culture and tourism. She is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Contemporary History at the Nova University of Lisbon. Hi, Anita. Thank you for being with me here today. Uh, hi, Elena, and thank you for inviting me to discuss this, uh, I hope, uh, interesting topic. In your current work, you deal with the phenomena of the so-called Galebovi, or seagulls in English, in socialist Yugoslavia. So local, young, usually young men who engage in sexual and romantic relationships with foreign tourists. Can you tell me a bit, who are these seagulls? Uh, yes, I'm still trying to find the root of why they're called seagulls. I don't know if I'm ever going to uh, find out, but these are, as you uh, rightfully said, usually young men, but sometimes also older and married men who engage in summer uh, with as many foreign women uh, in sexual relationship with as many foreign women uh, as possible. I would not mix them with gigolos, uh, which are today known as gigolos, because there is this uh, romantic subtext to these kind of encounters and also they are usually not uh, connected with uh, some monetary transaction. So it's a more of a phenomena of especially in the 60s of young men who until then didn't have the opportunity to have free sexual relations outside of dating to be married and marriage in these conservative Mediterranean societies. And then the phenomena changes through the time. It's not the same in 60s, it's not the same in 70s. Some of them exist even today, although they're mostly older, like 50, 60 years old, like the old the old Galibavi. And yes, it's, I think, a very uh, important phenomena for post-Yugoslav space, and it's really interesting that no one dealt with it. We can look at the seagulls, Galebovi, as an example of the eroticization of places based on stereotypes and fantasies of visitors, but also as uh, racialized bodies, uh, best summarized as sea, sand, sun and sex. Can you tell me a bit about the discourses of othering or the Mediterranean other in this context? Uh, so, yes, I uh, did extensive research for my PhD project for the book about uh, Yugoslav popular culture and its Mediterraneanization. This uh, discourse of Mediterranean, of course, emerges in discourse about uh, tourism and tourist gaze and so on. And I think it's really important to look at how the construct of Mediterranean was made from the 18th century until nowadays through this discourse of modernization, development, happy people who live in idyllic but undeveloped uh, part of Europe. So there 
countries is honoring between proper Europe and so-called the other, of course, also because Mediterranean is not just European. And here we can see with the emergence of the mass tourism in the 50s and later, until I would say late 80s, this uh, new exoticization of Mediterranean based on these old tropes that were built in the Grand Tour in the 18th century, in the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, mixed with, of course, uh, you know, economic practices of how to gather as many tourists as possible. And here, for one side, we can see the expectations of the tourists from the Northern Europe and Western Europe, which they have these true uh, popular culture, true movies, especially Hollywood movies and the first Italian stars of these uh, darker hair, uh, darker, dark skin people, dark hair, very passionate, uh, very uh, temperamental. We have Sophia Loren as a woman, you know, also like really temperamental, but also motherly Mediterranean. So we have these tropes that are widespread through the mass media in the 50s and 60s throughout Europe, which are partially based on reality. But then we also have this uh, self-exotization of the Mediterranean countries who push some of these narrative and these uh, ideas in order to actually gather many tourists. And this especially we can see as a competition between some European Mediterranean countries like Spain, Greece, Italy and Yugoslavia who are trying to, you know, sometimes present themselves as more traditional and more exotic than they were, like uh, donkey riding and, uh, you know, taking photos with donkeys. Uh, also lots of my gallop will be admit they uh, start sunbathing already in March to be more dark-skinned than they really are because this is what foreign women expect them to be. And what about these foreign women? There is also sexual othering and also some kind of imaginary of these Western, predominantly Western and North European uh, women by locals, but also in the Yugoslav public discourses at the time. It, it goes two ways, I would say. So for one hand, uh, I analyze lots of Yugoslav popular magazines, some erotic magazines, where they interview these women, what do they think about Yugoslav men? And they are really some, uh, as you said before, bit racial discourses, but like really uh, stereotyping and othering like these men, not only they're dark skin, they have dark hair, all these like Mediterranean tropes, but they're also natural in singing, they're strong, they're healthy. I think the, the word healthy is really meaningful in describing someone, how they, they look like. And on the other hand, we have this image of uh, Swedish women. Swedish women are in general in 60s, the, the epitome of a uh, beautiful northern european woman also in italy in spain and portugal you have so many movies about swedish women in in 60s coming to mediterranean because they're actually representative not only of something also exotic like blonde pale you know something completely different that our so-called our women look like but also because they are the first sexually liberated women in europe uh, so sweden had uh, really advanced sexual education and sexual liberation much earlier than other countries and they are then behaving much freely and then they also you know play in this uh, imaginology of uh, you know what men actually want to have in the 60s while local women are still abiding to honor and shame you know, traditional moral code system. Um, yeah, that's uh, related to that. Uh, maybe we could try also to put the the Galibovi and also Dalmatian, I guess, um, masculinities uh, in the Yugoslav context, in the context of uh, Yugoslav socialist society at the time, and also the double standard when it comes to sexual morality for both uh, young men and also women in the region. 
Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, Yugoslavia is always a bit more complicated because it's kind of way in the crossroads of, you know, so many cultures. It's, of course, not just Mediterranean. There is this Balkan, you know, traditional in Jovansvich's uh, terms, uh, patriarchal culture. And I'm still trying to figure out how to place these Dalmatian masculinities in the whole context of socialist Yugoslavia, because it is really important that this country was socialist and tried to build its own uh, sexual morality through education, that uh, sex was not seen as something, you know, dirty in this like Catholic or Christian morale, but it was also not supposed to be just like, okay, let's just do everything without having any repercussions. So there are some early sexologists, mostly psychologists, uh, doctors, and so on, who try to make this uh, sexual morality based on mutual respect respect and love. So it was not the problem. You, you could have sex before marriage. You could, you know, like engage in different sexual experiences, heterosexual experiences, but there had to be some romantic uh, and emotional connection to that. And here then we have like these young men, of course, in reality, people don't behave in that way, especially women who are still really afraid they will get pregnant. They There is a stigma about being pregnant. There is lots of abortions. There is uh, not so much use of contraception. So it's a bit complicated story here. And then, but we have this influx of just like young and available foreign women coming to the Adriatic. And I kind of think it's uh, partially because of that, that young men in the Adriatic behave differently, only because they actually do have the opportunity, and then around that they build this idea of a Dalmatian macho. There are some examples of um, behavior of uh, other men from other parts of Yugoslavia when they come to the Adriatic. And they basically, the locals say that they're ruining the thing for them because they don't know the nuances. So they don't know how to, you know, seduce women in this like Mediterranean romantic way. So they are too crude, but these are only anecdotal evidences. So I'm a bit careful of how to, you know, uh, map different types of expressing masculinity through sexuality in the whole Yugoslavia. This is something I still have to grasp on, mostly because it's not really that well researched. This, uh, all of this that we are talking about today is, of course, not only a Yugoslav phenomenon. It also happens across the Mediterranean, across Southern Europe. In addition to the seagulls in, in Yugoslavia, we have, of course, the well-known papagalli in Italy or the um, kamakia in Greece. What do they all have in common? Uh, so, yes, yeah, so as you said, the, the phenomena was widespread in the 60s in, I would say, all European Mediterranean countries. In Spain, there were picadores. Uh, in Portugal, a bit later, uh, they were also, they didn't have name but they existed there as, as well uh, so we can uh, see you know this common thing of like this uh, mediterranean conservatism of, Mediter of patriarchal mediterranean countries which actually uh, are rapidly developing thankful thanks to uh, mass tourism and because of that of course men because of the double standards of the society men do have this opportunity to actually explore their needs and their sexuality. For instance, Kamakia, the Greece is very well researched, I would say, Spain to a certain extent, Italy almost nothing, which I think is really interesting because it was the country for everything 
concerning Mediterranean in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And this is actually what my new project is going to be like. I'm going to try to compare Portugal, Italy and Yugoslavia as uh, countries with three different systems, socialism, capitalism and dictatorship transforming to uh, democracy. And actually see, you know, how influential was the society and ideology in this kind of behavior or these Mediterranean traits were the, the, the more crucial ones. Uh, what I can say, again, more mostly anecdotally from this uh, thing is that I would say that this phenomenon in Yugoslavia was seen as more benevolent than, for instance, in Italy. In Italy, it posed as a really big public security problem. So in Italy and France, there were even some laws like prohibiting men to like you know bother women uh, at the beach in restaurants and so on. And lots of female tourists uh, who are coming to Yugoslavia used to say that like Yugoslav men are not as, as problematic. They're not bothering that them that much as Italian men do. So they do know the measure. They accept no when it's uh, told, when they're told no. Of course, this is all, you know, like it's some examples I picked up during my research. There is much more research to be done, but I think there is a difference in between how countries responded to the phenomena and how these men were actually perceived in the society. And I hope, uh, ask me in six years, I will start my new project soon, ask me in six years. I'm really curious about Portugal, which was like really underdeveloped country in comparison to other countries because of Salazar dictatorship, uh, to see what the differences, you know, like what was happening in Portugal after the fall of the dictatorship in 74 and the boom of tourism even more, starting from 60. So I'm really curious how that country will fit in this uh, more global Mediterranean phenomenon. Thank you very much uh, for speaking to me today, Anita. This was uh, the transformative podcast of the Research Center for the History of Transformations with Jelena Djurejnovic and Anita Buchin. <laughs>